0: We are in uh, Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 20 to 24 this morning. And so, if you would, let's begin here by reading our text, as we often do. Matthew 11 verses 20 to 24, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes." Now, last week we looked at verses 16 to 19, where Jesus summarized the response of, of what he called this generation. This generation was the generation that was alive during Jesus's ministry. And that generation responded negatively to John and to Jesus. Those men offered the kingdom to that generation, but the kingdom would only come if the nation would Repent. And that was the message of John and Jesus. Their message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us what true repentance looked like. He showed us what kind of a righteous lifestyle He was calling us to when He said, repent. And we summarized that, something along these lines, that it was a God-centered righteousness, A God-centered righteousness that seeks to glorify God, and it's, it's really from the inside outwards. It's, it starts from the hidden person of the heart, kind of privately in our hearts before God, and then it works from there to the outside, to the hands, and to the actions. And so a God-centered righteousness from the heart to the actions. But the nation of Israel did not repent. And they didn't embrace this God-centered righteousness that Jesus had called them to. They rejected both John and Jesus. And of John, they said in verse 18, he has a demon. And of Jesus, they said in verse 19, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And because of this rejection, everything is going to change now in Jesus' ministry. Here he begins to denounce the cities where most of his miracles were done. He pronounces judgment upon them. Jesus talked about judgment already, but this is the first time that he pronounces woe. This is the first time that he says whole cities are going to be brought down to Hades. And from here forward, from really from this moment forward in this gospel, the kingdom is never said to be at hand again. Something has changed now in the whole ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus said or implied already in this gospel that one's eternal state depends on how somebody responds to him. And so just to kind of go back and see that, let's go to Matthew chapter 7 we'll look at verses 21 to 23 one's eternal state depends on how they respond to Jesus Christ and so Matthew seven twenty-one, Jesus says not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says on the day of judgment, I never knew you. And so on that day, the day of judgment, what matters is what Jesus decides about you. What if Jesus knows you or not. And to enter the kingdom of heaven, to enter into heaven itself, you don't only need to call him Lord, but you have to do the will, you have to live out the will of his Father. In other words, in, in order to enter into the eternal state, in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you need to have this righteous, God-glorifying lifestyle that he described in the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus himself will be the judge on that day. Following him is going to be what matters. And so then we see this again in Matthew 10 and verse 14 and 15. So Matthew ten fourteen says, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, This is the words of Jesus' disciples. He's sending them on the mission here. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And so if someone would not receive one of Jesus' disciples or the words that Jesus gave them to speak, they would face a more severe judgment even in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And again in verse 32 of Matthew chapter 10, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus is saying that in order to stand before the Father, we must acknowledge him before men. We need to stand with Christ in a hostile world. And if we do, he will acknowledge us in the presence of God. Jesus says he needs to represent us before the fathers. Otherwise, in the words of verse 28, God will destroy both body and soul in hell. And Jesus will represent us to the Father if we represent Him to the world. But again, don't miss how central Jesus is on Judgment Day. What, What matters is our response to Him. And that's exactly what we see in our text as well. Those cities had not responded to Jesus, and for that, they will face severe judgment. And so there's a day of judgment coming. And on that day, we will be judged for our sins. And the only escape from that judgment is through the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we reject Christ and fail to respond to him, we will face a more severe judgment. Or in the words of our text, it'll be less tolerable on that day of judgment. A less tolerable judgment awaits everyone who rejects Jesus Christ and for everyone who rejects the repentance that he calls us to. And so our text involves really one of the most fearful doctrines in all of Scripture, the doctrine of divine judgment. At some point after death, after we die, everyone, every one of us will stand before God and the Lord Jesus Christ to be judged for what we did in the body. The land of Sodom was judged for their sin in around 267 BC, about 4,000 years ago. But according to our text, there is still a future day of judgment for that wicked city and that land. Hebrews 9.27 says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. All of us have an appointment with God's holy justice. Even believers who have, in a way, escaped from the, the judgment through Christ, even we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Second Corinthians 5.10 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We must all appear. Each one of us is going to appear. Paul and Silas and Timothy and you and I, all of us are going to be rewarded or suffer loss on that day of judgment. Matthew 12 and verse 36, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned or Romans 14:12 says so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And this being the case, we do well then to understand this day of judgment so that we can stand on that day. And so what I've done for our study today as we're going to look at this text is I've divided the text theologically so that we're going to have, what we're going to see is three critical truths about God's judgment. And we're going to draw these three critical truths from the text, but we're not necessarily going to go in order verse by verse. And this is going to help us maybe, at least in my own mind, as I kind of prepared this, I think it's going to help us eliminate some of the overlap that happens. Because Jesus basically says the same thing about Chorazin and Bethsaida in verse 21, as he says about Capernaum in verse 23. And verses 22, if you look at the text, verses 22 and 24 are almost the same as well. And so if we were going to outline this text exegetically the way that we normally do, kind of following through the text, it would be something like this. There's the announcement of judgment because of unrepentance in verse 20. And then in verse 21, in the first part of that, there's the pronouncement of woe on Chorazin and Bethsaida. And then there's a statement of omniscience in in verse 21b the second half of 21 and verse 22, Jesus says what Tyre and Sidon would have done if he had done his mighty works there instead of in Chorazin and Bethsaida. And then he says it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for those cities. And so Jesus knows what would have happened if something other than what happened happened. And he knows what kind of judgment the people of the world are going to face for the way that they've responded to him. He knows who's getting a worse judgment and who's getting a better judgment. And so that's kind of one, two, three. The fourth thing we would see if we were going kind of verse by verse is the judgment of Hades for Capernaum, verse 23. And then a second statement of omniscience in the second half of verse 23 and verse 24. Jesus again says what would have happened in Sodom if he had did the miracles that he did in Capernaum in Sodom. And then he again tells whose judgment will be more bearable. But if we divide the text that way, we're going to have points two and four, basically the same. And again, verse, part, points three and five would be the same as well again. And so it would be a little more difficult for us, I think, as well to see the application of this text. And so we're going to divide it theologically, and we're going to see three critical truths about God's judgment three critical truths about God's judgment. First, we'll see the reason for judgment in verses 20 and and the second part of 21 and verse 23, the reason that there's a judgment. Then secondly, we'll see the nature of the judge in verse 21 and 23. And then we'll talk about the severity of judgment, verses 22 and 24. And we're going to spend most of our time on point one and then even more... um, then the next biggest chunk of time on point two, and then just shortly on point three. But these truths about divine judgment are going to help us in a number of ways. So here's why you want to listen to this. It'll serve us as a, a warning to us. And I think some of us might need to be warned lest we also come to that place of torment. Jesus was speaking to this to warn those who were listening that they would heed his call to repentance, lest they should perish with the cities that he denounces. These truths will also teach us how to evangelize. And here we can learn from the master evangelist. You know, we love to quote Matthew eleven twenty eight, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We love those verses, but don't forget that those verses are built on the foundation of verses 20 to 24. And so Jesus says, come to me. Why? Because if you don't come to me, woe to you, you will be brought down to Hades. And so Jesus, the master evangelist and the model of winsomeness, does not shy away from the so-called hard truths of Scripture. He warns of hell and death and judgment, and we must too in our evangelism. We should take our cues from him and not from the contemporary critics who warn us to stay away from the hard truths. The doctrine of hell should motivate our evangelism. It should fill our evangelism. We should talk about those things with unbelievers because they are real things. And the warning of them will sometimes cause people to turn from their sins. And from these truths, we're also going to learn about God. And we'll see his knowledge of all things. Even of what would have happened if things different than... Uh, Sorry, it's kind of tricky to say this part. Jesus tells us what would have happened if things were different than they are. And so Jesus knows even what would happen if something different happened. God knows every contingent possibility. And God knows every sin of every person in every secret thing, He knows all things. We see, too, here His patience with sinners. We see His holiness. And we see His ultimate purpose for the world. There's going to be a day of judgment because God is who He is. And so we'll have a chance to see our God. And so let's look at these truths then. The the first critical truth about judgment is, number one, the reason for judgment. And we're going to see this in verse 20, 21, and 23. And so we could ask then why is Jesus pronouncing judgment on these cities? Why is he denouncing them and what does it mean to denounce them? That word there translated denounce means to find fault. Most often in a way that shames or demeans another person. It's translated often in the New Testament to reproach, to revile, to mock or heap insults. This word was used in Matthew 5:11 where Jesus said, "Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And here it's used in a slightly different sense. It's it's to find a justifiable fault, to reproach or to reprimand someone. This word is used in Mark sixteen fourteen, where Jesus rebukes the disciples for their unbelief and hardness of heart. And so Jesus is finding fault with these cities that he mentions, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And he's finding fault with them because they are guilty. They are guilty of sin. And so what is their sin? Well, a few things are mentioned in the text here. The first thing is, and really I'm I'm only going to cover two, but the first is that despite all the mighty works done in those cities, they had failed to repent. Capernaum was the center of Jesus' ministry. His home base of operations was there. Corazon was only a mile or two north from there. Bethsaida was very close as well, but on the other side of the Jordan. And that's where John, the apostle, and Andrew, and Philip were all from. That was their cities. And all three cities would have known about Jesus, and they would have experienced his mighty works. And all, And, and he had actually done most of his mighty works in those cities, according to the text. Again, in verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And that's the key there, because they did not repent. That's why they are going to be judged. Verse 21 tells us that if Tyre and Sidon had seen the works like that, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Second part of verse 23 says, for if the mighty works done in you, and he's speaking about Capernaum there, if the mighty works done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. And so Sodom was destroyed in judgment because of its lack of righteousness. It was a wicked city and for it to remain, it would have had to have turned from its sinful ways. And so we're talking about repentance. Repentance. The first sin mentioned here for which Jesus denounces these cities is failure to repent. Failure to heed his ministry. They failed to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah and King. They received the healings and they received the miracles, but they did not become disciples of the Lord Jesus. And so listen now, this is really important here. It is a sin worthy of judgment to reject Jesus Christ. It is a sin worthy of judgment to fail to repent. Now I'm sure the people of those cities in many cases just sort of ignored Jesus Christ. They just, they just kind of ignored Him and continued to live the way they always had. They just kind of kept on going about life in the, in the ordinary way. Many of those people too were decent, morally upright people. They were the people of Israel But rejecting or ignoring Jesus Christ is a sin. And it's a sin worthy of the greatest punishment according to our text. And I think this speaks to us, doesn't it? We've heard of Jesus Christ. If you're here today listening, you've heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen his greatness and his miracles in the word of God. We've been studying this through the book of Matthew. And if we ignore it, Or if we're indifferent, or for whatever reason, if we fail to respond, we are guilty of the greatest sin possible. And so kids, some of you are are children here today, and this is really important for you. If you don't respond to Jesus Christ... You are guilty of a great sin. You are sinning a great sin. You might think, I'm just kind of going about the life like I normally have. But if you don't respond to Christ, you are guilty of a great sin in God's eyes. Now, before you can come to Christ, you must believe that he can save you from your sins. And you must believe that he can save you from God's judgment and God's wrath, which we're going to talk about today But beware of making excuses and beware of refusing or failing to respond and repent of your sins. And so we need to ask then, what does it look like to repent? What was Jesus looking for in those cities? How should they have responded to his ministry? Well, to repent means to have a change of mind. And it's a change of mind about everything in your life. It's a change in mind about what's important. It's a change in mind about what's valuable, about what's worth living for, and it's a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. It's a, an inside-out change, a change of heart and of thinking in the heart that produces a change outwardly in the actions and the way we live our lives. And the thing that we change our mind about is really two things. We change our mind about sin, and we change our mind about God. And so to repent, first of all, then, means I change my mind about sin. I change my view of sin to the way that God views sin, to the way that God thinks about sin. You see, formerly, and I I could say this even of my own life, formerly I thought sin was good. Or at least certain sins, I thought that was where I would find joy, And I delighted in certain sins and certain pleasures that God and his word call sinful. And so to repent means that I change my views of those things and I turn away from doing them. And I turn away from even loving them and liking them and finding joy in them. But it's not only a change of mind about sin, it's also a change of mind about God and about his son Jesus Christ. True repentance recognizes the greatness of God. True repentance sees God as worthy. And it says, I want to honor this great God who made me and who saved me. Repentance says, I'm going to honor him with my life by obeying his commandments. Repentance says, I will honor him by submitting to his authority, by obeying his word. And this turning from sin to God can really only happen through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so repentance involves a transformation at the deepest levels. And that happens by God's grace. God changes us from loving sin to loving God. God opens our eyes to his worth. And he softens our hearts. And he makes us willing on the day of his power. But still, repentance is our responsibility. It's something that we must do. We must turn away from our sins and come to God through Jesus Christ. I want you to turn with me to one of my favorite verses on repentance in First Thessalonians chapter one and verse nine. We'll look at verse nine and 10 here, First Thessalonians chapter one. Paul's talking about his reception in Thessalonica, and he says in verse 9, "...for they themselves report concerning us what kind of reception we had among you." And this is where I want you to really pay attention. "...and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven." whom he raised from the dead Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come and so the Thessalonians when because of Paul's ministry they turned to God and from idols now an idol is anything that captures our affections Anything that we love or worship or turn to in difficulty for comfort or pleasure or joy. Anything that really captures our heart and mind and, and, and our affections. Idols are what we delight in or what we think about or what we serve. And the Thessalonians had turned away from those things and they turned to God to serve him. Now God had captured their affections, and they would, they would, and they did. They loved Him, and they delighted in in, in this living and true God. And now they worshipped Him, and they looked to Him for joy, and pleasure, and comfort, and any other good. Formerly they looked to sin, they looked to idols. Now they look to God for all of those things. And notice that they began to to wait for the return of Jesus Christ in verse. Uh, Nine again, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so repentance turns from sin and from idols and even from the love of ourselves and we turn from those things to God. And then from then on, by grace, we, this repentance seeks to live a life of righteousness to the glory of God. It seeks to follow after Jesus Christ and to be like him. And so the first sin of those cities was their failure to repent. And for that, they would be punished. And tied to this, we see it in verse 23. Go back to Matthew and look at verse 23. Jesus says there, and you, Capernaum... Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Now, this is an allusion. What Jesus is saying here, it's an allusion to Isaiah 14. So maybe keep your finger here if you want and open up to Isaiah and let's look at chapter 14. And we'll start Isaiah 14 and verse 12. Actually, before we go to verse 12, look at, look at verse 3, Isaiah 14, 3. This kind of sets the context of who, who this is talking about. When the Lord has given you, and he's speaking to Israel here, when the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. So the, notice this is about, this is a taunt against the king of Babylon. And we can skip down then to verse 12. This is talking about the king of Babylon. Many see in here, they see Satan kind of behind this king, working through him. And verse 13 describes, begins to describe the pride of this king. So starting at verse 12, let's read it here. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Again, that's speaking to the about the king of Babylon. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? Now notice the parallelism with our passage in Matthew 11. The king, the king of Babylon said, I will ascend to heaven. And Jesus asked about the, the Capernaums, the, the, I don't know how you would say that, the people of Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? And Jesus's question there expects a negative answer. You will not be exalted to heaven. Will you? And of course, and the answer then expected is no, you will not. And so there's this parallelism. I will ascend to heaven. And Capernaum seems to think that they too would ascend to heaven. And Jesus says, no, you won't. And then in verse 15 of, of Isaiah 14, but you are brought down to Sheol, which the Greek translation of that would be you are brought down to Hades, to the far reaches of the pit. And they, then again, in our text, you will be brought down to Hades. And so notice the pride of this king in Isaiah 14. He's going to make his throne above the stars of God. He's going to make himself like the Most High even. And by alluding to this passage, Jesus is drawing out two things. He's showing, first of all, the pride of Capernaum. They're, they think they're doing so well. They think that they are spiritually uh, rich and mature, and that they're going to ascend to heaven. When in fact, they are still in their sins. They're deceived about themselves, and so failure to repent is pride, thinking that you have no need of turning from sin, or or, or thinking that you're above is is like thinking that you're above God. God says, "There is none righteous, no not." One, And so pride was their sin, putting their thoughts above God. That's a prideful thing. God says we need to repent. God says we're not righteous and we're sinful. But sometimes we say, I am doing just fine. I'm going to ascend to heaven all on my own. And so the first thing Jesus is doing is showing the pride of Capernaum for failing to repent. And second, by alluding to this passage... Jesus is saying that Capernaum is as sinful as Babylon. Babylon is the epitome of the sinful world that stands against God. Babylon thought it was above God. Babylon opposed God. Babylon loved its sinful ways and would not repent. But we could say the same thing about Capernaum. And so when we think about the sins that Jesus is talking about here, he's talking about pride and opposition against God. That's the sin of Capernaum. Pride and opposition against God. And so what about you? If you will not turn from your sin, from what God says is sin... Which is, if you will not worship him above all else and seek his ways, then you are aligned with Babylon and Capernaum. And God says, you will be brought down to Hades. Again, the Old Testament, Sheol, is the New Testament. Hades, that's Greek versus Hebrew, that talks about the grave or the place of the dead. But here, Hades refers to the place of punishment for sin. And so the reason for judgment here is the sin of not repenting and the pride behind that sin. And with that, the association with the world, the world that is hostile to God and opposed against God. And Jesus is saying by resisting and not responding to the gospel, by not responding to his call to repent, Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin were opposed to him, hostile to him, and for that they would be judged. And so that's the reason for judgment. The second critical truth about judgment has to do with the God who judges. And so let's talk about number two, the nature of the judge. And let's go back to our text then in Matthew. I want to just draw out four things that we can see from our passage about the nature of God as a judge. And the first thing, and really the most obvious one, is is that we see His knowledge. And what I mean here is, is what we call omniscience. God knows all. God is all-knowing. And so God is a judge, and he's a judge that knows everything. He knows all. Scripture is abundantly clear on this, and our passage kind of adds something unique to this whole discussion about God's omniscience. God knows even what would have happened if something other than what happened happened. God knows every potential thing that might have occurred if he did something other than he did. And we see this in the second part of verse 21 and the second part of verse 23 in our text. So let me just read that again. Starting at verse 21, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes." And then skip down to the second part of verse 23. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Well, to this point in Jesus' ministry, he hadn't gone to Tyre and Sidon. Now, he's going to do something there a little bit. Um, in, I think it's Matthew 15. I think around verse 23, Matthew 15. He's going to heal the daughter of a Canaanite woman. But Tyre and Sidon were kind of north and west of Galilee. They were coastal cities. They were Gentile cities. And they were often spoken against by the prophets in the Old Testament. They were known as wicked cities in the Old Testament days. And God knew that those cities and the individuals in those cities, He knew what they would have done if Jesus had done His miracles there. If Jesus had done that, they would have repented. But of course, Jesus did not do that. And so they did not repent. And that's amazing of itself, really, if you think about it, because God knew that they would have repented. But even knowing that, God didn't send Jesus there to preach the gospel to those people. But our focus for now is just simply that God knows. God knows every detail every choice every person would make under every circumstance that will happen in their lives or that could happen in their lives god knows the thoughts of every heart of every person in the world jeremiah 17:10 says i the lord search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways according to the fruit of his deeds. And so God knows the motives of our hearts. He knows the thoughts of our heart, every thought that we've ever thought and every deed that we've ever done. And he knows it so that he can judge us according to our ways. First Chronicle 28 verse nine says, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. God knows every secret sin, according to Ecclesiastes 12.14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Again, that's Ecclesiastes 12.14. And so as we think about this, God, you may be able to hide your sins from others, but God knows everything. He sees all. And one day, every sin will be exposed and judged. And the only way to avoid Hades and hell is to repent now and seek forgiveness through Jesus Christ before it's too late. And so that's the knowledge of God. The second thing we see about God here is his holiness. All of this shows us that God is holy. God is a holy judge. God has appointed a day of judgment and every sin will be judged. Even the secret sins of the heart Again, Matthew 12:36, "On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak." Wow, every careless word will be given an account for. Now, holiness means that something or someone is separate from sin and devoted to God. Separate from sin and devoted to God. Holiness in God speaks of his absolute moral purity. God is perfectly and utterly separate from sin, which means that He perfectly hates every form of sin, no matter how insignificant in our eyes. God hates every form of sin. Sin is abominable and utterly detestable in His eyes. And on the Day of Judgment, we're going to see how completely God hates sin. His holiness cannot abide sin, and therefore sin must be punished by our holy God. Holiness in God speaks of His absolute moral purity and, as well, His devotion to Himself. This holiness of devotion is primarily seen among the persons of the Trinity. The Father is devoted to the Son and to the Spirit, and the Son is devoted to the Father and to the Spirit, and so on. God is devoted to the highest end possible, which is His own glory. See, God esteems himself above all. And so sin, which is contrary to his greatness, will be fully and finally removed from this world on the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, God is going to remove sin once and for all from his world and from his creation. God is going to vindicate his holiness when he exercises the full fury of his wrath against sin and against sinners on that day. And on the Day of Judgment, God is going to show His devotion to His glory and His perfect moral purity. The Day of Judgment is going to show us God's holiness. But until that day, what we see is we see His patience. And that's the third characteristic of God that we want to see in our text. And that is, I guess that see in your outline, that's patience. God is patient. See, God is incredibly patient with sinners. And that's why sometimes people think that he will not judge and that they're going to be okay. But just because God has held back his wrath so far doesn't mean that he won't judge. He will. Matthew eleven twelve 12, again, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth And ashes, and that's where we see God's patience. He says, long ago. Tyre and Sidon would have repented a long time ago. But God gave Chorazin and Bethsaida, he gave them more time than that. Now that time is up, at least at the moment that Jesus is speaking, that time is up. They were given more miracles and they were given more time. And that shows God's patience with them. God was gracious, but now his patience has come to an end. God is patience, but eventually time will run out. And if you believe that Jesus is God and that he died on the cross to pay for the wrath of God, but you haven't repented and trusted in Christ for salvation, then you are risking an eternity in hell by delaying coming to him. And not only that, you are committing sin. You're committing near to the same sin that Jesus condemns in our passage. And when our time allotted by God is done, then he's going to fulfill his ultimate purpose for creation. And that's kind of the fourth thing that I want to see about, about um, the nature of God. I called it D purpose Really, the this purpose of God stems from God's will. And so we could think of it as the attribute of God's will. But I called it purpose in our outline. The day of judgment is going to show us and, and be the, the completion of God's purpose for the world. It's where God is going to complete his plan that he had from the foundation of the world. And I I love the way that Isaiah, or not Isaiah, that Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 9 speaks about this. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 9. And we're just kind of drawing this point about will out of the fact that there is a day of judgment. God has a day of judgment Awaiting. So a little bit of of the way through Ephesians 1, 9. It says, The mystery of His will, and this is speaking about God, the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so God is going to unite all things together through His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to bring about blessing and undo the curse through Jesus Christ. God's going to create peace and harmony where there was strife and hostility through Jesus Christ. God is going to redeem everything that was wrecked by sin and Satan, and He's going to do it all through His Son. And this purpose and plan and and will are accomplished at the fullness of time. And that's when all of God's enemies and everyone who is indifferent to his glory are going to be judged on that day. And so God's will and God's purpose will be fulfilled on the day of judgment. And so then the question again for us today as we're thinking about this is, which side will you be on on that day? Will you be united in Christ celebrating the victory of God your savior the one who saved you from your sins or will you be the one to whom Jesus says in Matthew 25:41 depart from me you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels or again in Matthew 7:23 that Jesus says then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness And so we need to really think about this. Which side are we on? Are we on the side of Christ and God? Have we been redeemed? Have we turned away from our sin to love and honor God? Or are we clinging on to our sin and going to be face the wrath of God on that day of judgment? You see, God knows our sin. He knows even the sin of unrepentance. And God is Holy. He will judge. He must judge sin. He will judge the evil in this world. And God is patient, but eventually he's going to fulfill his purpose and carry out his will for the world. And so that's the nature of God that we can kind of draw from this passage. Finally, let's see number three. Let's look at just briefly the severity of judgment. And we get this from verses 22 and 24 with a severity of judgment. You see, our text shows us that there's going to be varying degrees of punishment in hell. Again, verse 22, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And again, verse 24, but I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, it's interesting that the ESV translates the same word more unbearable in verse 22. And then it translates that same word again, more tolerable in verse 24. It's the same word in the original both times, but that's what it means, bearable or tolerable. We already saw this word again in Matthew 10 and verse 15, where Jesus said, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And he's speaking about that town that rejects his disciples, and his message of repentance. See, there will be a greater judgment for whoever rejected Christ during those days of his amazing ministry on earth. A greater judgment, get this, even than Sodom and Gomorrah, who were killed with fire and brimstone from heaven for their perverse immorality and homosexuality. And notice here that again, that Sodom and Gomorrah were judged when fire came down from heaven, but there is yet still a future judgment for that city on that day. There is another judgment coming. That was just a foretaste of God's judgment. But God considers the sin of rejecting Christ or being indifferent to Christ as worthy of greater punishment than the rampant sexual sin of Sodom. Now, God didn't even think it fit to allow Sodom to remain on the earth, but Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida continued as normal. They just kind of went about life as normal, no fire from heaven, but when that day of judgment comes, they would go to Hades and then to the lake of fire, and they will face a more severe judgment than even those cities. You see, when we think about hell, it is eternal. It is eternal. And it is a place of eternal conscience, conscious torment, day and night forever. It's the absence of God from, from whom all good comes. And so there's God's presence and God's blessing and God's goodness. All the good things that we enjoy in this world come from him. But in hell, that goodness is cut off. Again, Matthew twenty five forty one. Jesus said, It's the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's the place of the cursed who are made to depart from Christ. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 7 to 9, it says this, when the, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, this is on that, that day of judgment, the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And so there's this eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. In Luke 16, Hades is described as a place of anguish, a place of anguish in flames, a place of torment, it's called later in that passage, a a place that one cannot escape once one gets there. Six times in Matthew, it's called a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of, of wishing that you had done differently, wishing that you had turned from your sins. It's sometimes tied there with a, a fiery furnace, and other times it's tied with outer darkness, but it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those who die without Christ will go to Hades The place of the dead, it's a place of suffering. Their souls will go to that place until the day of judgment. And after that day of judgment, they will be resurrected. Or actually, they'll be resurrected for that day of judgment and then cast into the lake of fire. Jesus calls this the resurrection of judgment in John 5.29. Now, any eternal fire where the vengeance of the Lord and of God is poured out on the wicked, is going to be unbearable. There's, there's no bearable portion of hell. The rich man in Hades begged even for just a drop of water to cool his tongue, but that was not given. But for some, apparently, according to our text, for some, that torment will be more bearable than for others. In Luke 12, 48, Jesus says, "...everyone to whom much was given... Of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And so, these cities that had seen Jesus' miracles and had seen his mighty works and had heard him himself preach the gospel, more would be required of them. And because of that, they were going to be worthy of greater punishment. See, the more revelation we have, the more gospel we hear, the more guilty we will be for rejecting it or for failing to respond. Now, you haven't seen Jesus in person and you haven't seen his miracles, but you have heard the gospel. Even here today, in in some ways, you have heard the gospel. And if you don't understand the gospel, if you're here today and you're, you're hearing me speak about hell and you're just not sure how can I be delivered from this place of torment, then I would ask you to come and talk to me how you could be saved. And I would love to tell you how you can be saved and how you can know that you have for sure escaped that judgment. And so come and talk to me after if you don't understand the gospel. The only deliverance from this terrible place is through Jesus Christ who died in our place, who died to bear God's wrath. He took this penalty for us so that we could be reconciled to God. And so the only way of escape is through Him. And so I would urge you, if you're here today and you're not a believer, you haven't turned from your sins, turn from your sins today and be saved from the wrath of God because otherwise it's woe to you on the day of judgment. And so repent and come to Christ before it's too late. Let's pray. Father, uh, what a, a text, what a, a a series of words from our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you are a holy God and that, that you will conquer. We thank you, Father, that you will not allow wickedness to remain in this creation and that you will one day be all in all, that you will be one day glorified the way that you deserved. And to accomplish that, Father, we know that you will have to deliver the wicked to hell. Father, we pray for those who hear this, that, that you would save them, that you would bring them from their sin and have them turn to Jesus Christ to know you and love you and escape this punishment. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be useful, to reach others and deliver them from this terrible estate. But Father, we thank you that you will one day judge and that you will one day make righteousness to reign and that you will one day be worshipped in this world by every single tongue and even glorified by the way that you judge the wicked. Father, we pray and we, we just thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ, for the way of escape that you provided We're going to sing about that now and and we just pray you'd bless our singing and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.